Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you earn, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, Pow. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barber de Graff, and I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. I'm here with Jordan Baker, my co-host. How's it going? It is going well. Yeah, it's super hot today. Yeah. I don't know. We're super bored, and we're going to talk about weather. Yeah. Hey, listeners. Um, yeah, hey, listeners. Isn't it warm? Yeah, but we're excited because today our guest is a show veteran, a, sh a grizzled, um, what was it? Crafty veteran. Crafty, crafty, crafty veteran. veteran. That's yes. what, yes. Dr. Kevin Covey. Hi, thanks so, for yeah. having me back. So our listeners might remember you from our Interstellar episode where we all were super enthusiastic about the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We all um, agreed 100% with everything they did. Yep. And it was super accurate. And so today we invited you back to talk about something that is, I think, really exciting for the general public, this idea of exoplanets, which are planets that are outside of our solar system, and how do you find them, how many have been found, that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. It sounds more like an exoskeleton, like an exoskeleton right. planet. Right, there, like there isn't any planets inside, they're only outside. Right, yeah. yeah. And it has like a bug infestation of... <laughs> yep. Aliens, it's, like Starship it, Troopers. It's super Trooper. No, not no, Super Troopers. Super Troopers. Yeah. <laughs> I always get those mixed up. Totally different Covered maple syrup. We're going to get to media at the end of the, the show. But yes, so yeah, we don't know if there's bugs on them yet. We are going to talk about possible other worlds and stuff like that are inside our, our own solar system later. But for now, let's talk about what are the ways we find these planets outside of our solar system? And what was the first one that was found, our first few what was the method to find those first ones? So the, the first planets that were actually found outside our own solar system were found by this kind of really unique technique. They're called the pulsar planets because they're a couple of small planet-sized objects that are in orbit around these dead stars, um, stars that have evolved, gone through the red giant phase and have you know, created these little remnants called pulsars. Which which I want to bring us back to our p past episode, because when we were talking about interstellar, I was like going off about how ridiculous it was that they were going to these planets around a black hole. But you're telling me that the first planets were found around not a black hole, but something at the end of the star's life, kind of like a black hole, but what is a pulsar? Right, yeah, it's I mean, yeah, these pulsars <laughs> are what uh, result from these massive stars that go through a supernova process. And the pulsars are what are left for the relatively low-mass things that go supernova, and then black holes are created from even more massive stars. Right, so I was totally, so, I was wrong. Well, except, <laughs> I mean, except that it is, I mean, part of the puzzle about these planets, and, you know, it's not like we've found thousands of them since right. is that it, does, it is a kind of unusual situation and you know people have spent a lot of time thinking about how these planet-sized objects would have actually gotten in around these pulsar and, and how did they just survive the supernova exactly yeah yeah and whether or not could they have been larger before the supernova like so these may perhaps be like the cores of larger planets like jupiter where they're outer atmosphere actually got disrupted during the supernova and all that's left is like these little small earth mass planets that's super that's super interesting yeah i didn't know that until we were yeah looking at that yeah but though but it but that was a very odd way to detect planets and it has not proven to be a, a 
you know, a fruitful way to continue looking for them, in part because, you know, this solar system has gone through some really dramatic changes. And so if we're actually looking for solar systems that can support life, it may not be the first place we would start looking look. at pulsars. Yeah. Right? When we did look at the pulsar, we were looking at like the light coming from the pulsar, the energy, I should say. And so that's how we kind of also look for these planets, right? We look for these objects. We look at the light signatures, which we look at the spectra, I guess yeah. is the way I should say this. Yeah, well, and in, in these pulsar systems, so the pulsars, they're sending out these pulses, which make them actually really, really nice clocks. And so what we could actually see was there'd be a slight delay from the pulses when when the planet is tugging it away from us, and then the, the pulses would kind of pile up and get closer together when when the star was moving towards us um, in the course of its orbit. And so the pulsar planets were detected through this way of finding some signature of, of the fact that the planet is orbiting it affects the signal that we get from the star in a repeatable way every right. orbit. And so that's the same that same principle is how we detect planets around normal stars is that we do we, we see these changes in their uh, in the stars spectrum that are related to its motion due to the planet orbiting around it i think we should maybe take a second to explain what we mean by looking at a star spectrum or spectra yeah so go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> so Kevin and I teach the same astronomy class, and this is an issue. This is a topic that comes out in our class that's just really hard to explain, and people get very frustrated yeah. talking about spectral lines, yeah. or as Jordan calls them, Doppler lines. Yes, Doppler lines. Doppler lines. Yeah. yeah. So basically what we're talking about is um, if you imagine taking the light from any kind of star, but imagine you know the light from the sun, and sending it through a prism, you can break up this light into each of its constituent colors. Right, like the Pink Floyd album. Yes, like the Pink Floyd album. Correct. Yep. Go yep. on. Or like a rainbow in you know our own atmosphere that's you know spreading apart the different colors of sunlight. The prisms are the raindrops. Whoa. That sounds like a poem. But it, it but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, are yeah. the raindrops. Right. The su the sunlight goes you know goes through the raindrops and then that what's that's what makes that's the rainbow in the, the light. Yeah. In the sky. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. I use that in astronomy. You can use right. that. Kevin. I will. I don't have <laughs> <You're> paper. <welcome. laughs> um, but if we and so if we do that, you know, not with raindrops, but with instruments on the back of a telescope, we can point our telescope at, you know, many stars in the night sky, and we can break up the starlight that we receive from that star into its separate colors. And if we do that extremely precisely, what we can actually see is that there's certain colors of light that material in the star's atmosphere likes to absorb. And so we'll essentially see these really distinctive patterns where we're detecting less light than you would you would think should be there based on how much light you see at neighboring so you, wavelengths. So you'll see these like dark lines where like all of a sudden you're like, why isn't the light there? Yeah. Hmm. And it's because elements have absorbed them. Right. So those dark lines are, they correspond to wavelengths of light. So a type of light that has a particular wavelength. And, and that's very important because what that means is that then if the properties of those lines change, we're, we're able to detect slight changes in the color at which we're, those lines are appearing. Right. And those, those lines appear at different wavelengths, like you said, different values. Right. And that seems weird, right? Like you were saying, and that tells you something about motion. Yeah, and it tells us that something's happening, that something's happening. And so what we, we actually see kind of in terms of the light that we detect is the motions of these lines on, in a regular way. And because of effects that we are really familiar with here on Earth, right, we know that there is this effect called the Doppler shift 
where a wave that is emitted by a moving source, it's going to change the wavelength of that wave. And so we're all familiar with this in terms of like police sirens or ambulance sirens. When those cars pass you on the sidewalk, you can hear a change in the pitch of that siren, right? It starts off, I hope I get this right. It starts off high, like it starts off high it's and then it goes as low it's coming to you yeah, and it, as it, it passes goes you. low as yeah. it goes away. And that, <laughs> right. And that pitch is <laughs> that actually. That was good. That was good. <laughs> yeah. I hope you all had your stereo headsets on. Yeah. And I talked over it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Good. good. That sounded more like a race car. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> like that's what it is. Yeah. Right. No. Gina's coming in again. That's yeah, that, was, that was like a whale. <laughs> that was a whale. I speak whale. Yeah. There we go. The pitch, so, high pitch means a higher frequency and a lower pitch is a low frequency. So what he was talking about, wavelengths and those lines moving, in sound, those lines moving um, is associated to pitch. And right. in astronomy, those lines moving are associated to the star color and the star actually moving. Right. And so we see in the spectra of stars, we see these absorption lines, these spectral lines moving back and forth. And because because of what we know about the Doppler effect, that tells us how the star is actually moving. And so as so there was a long time where astronomers spent a lot of effort trying to figure out how precisely can we measure these small shifts of, of color in a, in a star spectrum because that corresponded to being able to measure smaller and smaller speeds that the star was moving at. And so first, you know, since like the 100 years ago, we were able to detect shifts that corresponded to two stars orbiting each other, so binary star systems. But it took a long time to actually get our instruments precise enough that we could measure the shifts so that the star would be moving in response to not something massive like another star, but in response to the tug of gravity from a planet that's actually orbiting it. Right. And this is another issue why our students like struggle with this, and it's a hard issue. This idea of Newton's third law, where every action has an equal and opposite reaction, that the sun is pulling on Earth with the same force as Earth is pulling on the sun. Yeah. So our own sun is wobbling a little bit. If we were outside of our solar system and we were to look at our sun, we could actually detect some amount of movement. Yeah. From yeah. mostly from Jupiter, but you know. Right. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science, and you are listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We're talking about other worlds with astrophysicist Dr. Kevin Covey. So we were finding we were finding these planets because we are actually not visibly seeing the movement, but looking at their spectra, which tells us that they were moving. Yeah, I, right. would, I would think that just you would see through the telescope just something. You could move the telescope like uh, <laughs> right. like, like those bad horror movies or something. Like, oh, no, it's an earthquake. Right. <laughs> it's jiggling. <laughs> right, and that, and that would actually be the, the motion that we're detecting. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you make a good experiment to know that it's not you? Is what right. you're saying? Yeah. Spectrum. Yeah. Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a, and a lot of work. So it actually turns one of the ways in which they do that is they they were able to figure out that there are special lines of of colors of light that our Earth's atmosphere actually will absorb as the light from the star is passing through the atmosphere to the telescope. And so those were like we're pretty sure that the Earth's atmosphere isn't moving. You know, oh, in a in right. a bulk way with respect to us, oh, and so yeah. those We're those stable. allow us to say, okay, that was those wavelengths. We know what atoms are absorbing those things, and we know that the 
Earth's atmosphere isn't lifting away from us or collapsing onto us. So that tells us, okay, that's wherever we see that feature, we know that that's at rest. And so if we see something shifting with respect to that, that's how uh -huh. we can measure the motion really precisely. So it, doing these kinds of measurements using absorption lines of gas that we that we put into the, the spectrum as well was, was one of the technological advances that made this whole planet detection thing possible. Yeah. Are there uh, certain stars that move more than others? Or like, what's the general, like, what's our sun? What, how much does that sway either way? How much does it move? So as Gina said, most of the sun's motion is actually due. So the motion, right, it's all due to gravity. And so the big factors involved are how heavy is the star, how heavy is the planet, and how far are they separated. And so for, for the sun and Jupiter separated by the radius of Jupiter's orbit, it turns out that the sun ends up moving over the course of Jupiter's orbit about its own width. So if we actually took these kinds of measurements from the sun over the course of, like uh, from we're, outside we're our like own solar system. like an Alpha Centauri or something. Yeah, we if we were in a different star system yeah. and looking at our own, we would see over the course of five years, the sun slowly move away from us and then slowly move back towards us. Um, and that motion... Um, Is the distance of its own diameter. Yeah, in total, the, the most, yeah. Wow. What's yeah. the fastest moving one? Is there one that's just like jiggles all the time like there's, so there's some of the tiny first, planets going around it yeah. well so the, the the fastest moving stars like that are going to be these binary star systems and they're moving at hundreds of kilometers per second which is doing the math in my head really quickly <laughs> like that's like miles per second it's pretty yeah. fast wow but in order to detect planets some of the first planets detected by this method were moving at kind of speeds of about 100 or 50 meters per second so that's kind of like a football field in about a second so not um, certainly not slow. Like I couldn't run a football field in a second, but, but I could imagine a car driving right. down a football sure. field. But, in a but faster than us, right? Because yeah. these first ones had these Jupiter-like planets that were even bigger than Jupiter, but really close in, right? Yeah. So we were talking about um, at a previous meeting that yeah. these really really giant gas planets were really close, right? And then that totally. Those were the first ones we found, and that totally messed up our idea of how solar systems formed. Yeah, yes, exactly, right. And that's because so the, they were heavy planets, and so that made the gravitational effect strong. And the fact that they were close... Had a smaller period. Meant it had a smaller period, so that it was happening more quickly, and the gravitational interaction was stronger. So the planet was making the star wobble more because Qu it was quicker. really close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it made it it made those those hot Jupiter systems much much easier to detect. Right. How how many solar systems outside of our own solar system have these really hot Jupiters really close in? So it took us a long time of actually continuing to study stars where we hadn't detected planets and continue to monitor them to try and detect you know longer period orbits. So signs that there was a planet at a much larger distance. Um, than what these hot Jupiters have. And also to be able to, to measure kind of weaker wobbles, which correspond to smaller planets. So we had to monitor lots and lots of stars to eventually kind of figure out and place these hot Jupiters in context. And so the result of all that work is it now looks like about 5% of solar systems have these kind of oddball hot Jupiter planets, which is not so it's that it's are close not, in i mean that are that are very we, very close we have a jupiter but i mean the, these really big ones that are close in is what you're talking about yeah, yeah no they have they're they're close enough that to me the way i know that they're close is that they have orbits of like a few days which is wow. really quick yeah. um but 
What what's Mercury? So I think Mercury. So ooh, I should know this. So yeah, Venus me too. is like I, should know this. I think Venus is two hundred seventy days. Uh-huh. I think Mercury is like ninety. Yeah. Um, so orbits of like a couple days are like yeah. really close in these huge right. Jupiter-like planets that are further in than Mercury. Than Mercury. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Wow. So and if you were, I mean, these these because they're like Jupiter, they don't have a surface that you can stand on. But if you could, they'd have temperatures like two thousand. Uh, degrees, so it's kind of like hotter than yeah. hotter than your oven. <laughs> like you, yeah. Is it? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like unless you have like a nice Tahiti. like brick like pizza oven. <laughs> Good pizza on hot Jupiters. We should open yeah. a pizza place <laughs> yeah. called Hot Jupiters. We, we should get your yeah. hot Jupiter pizza. <laughs> our <laughs> listeners are gonna steal our ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, trademark. Trademark. <laughs> it's yeah. It's, it's already happened. See, this is going to air month a month after we've um, yeah. recorded it. Yeah. So, it's, listeners, we've already trademarked that. Yeah. Come to our grand opening. <laughs> it's on Jordan. <laughs> it's on State Street. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of cool too. We're still talking about at the very beginning, like the public really likes this topic, this exoplanets topic, and they like it so much that recently there's been this contest of naming exoplanets, right? Yeah. So, who was like an international astronomical union has yep. put together yeah, something where. The public can like name a planet if they want. Is right? that the is that the one where you send in money and you can name your planet if you want to name it after grandma? Well, I've actually had conversations about that with students. The they're like, so you're an astronomer. Like when you look in my catalog or in your astronomy catalogs, do you see like that star that I bought for? Right. Like you said, Jordan, my grandma. No, how we do, do you not. let them down? Yeah. How do um, you... I, I just say no. That's a scam because I right. mean. You let them down? Why would you let them down? <laughs> yeah. You have to let them down because yeah, yeah. as Gina is saying, those uh, those bias star programs are. It just means that some that company is maintaining a catalog. It's like if Google like made a second copy of Google Maps, but then they were just like, yeah. we'll let you erase a street name and you can write your name on it. Right. They'll be like, right. we'll name a street after you. Right. But but it's just some copy of Google Maps. That and no they, and they don't at. actually oh. they don't actually put it online or something. Yeah. That's what, that's what it yeah. would be like because as astronomers, all the stars we look at and all the galaxies we look at have like really really boring names like. NGC 1533, you know, and stuff like that. It doesn't have, Television like, rating. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, right? It's not like, you know, Gina's galaxy. Um, but there are a few galaxies and stars that actually do have names, but that's historical, like the Andromeda galaxy, because we, we can see that with our own naked eye, and, like, Sirius, uh, Sirius right? Yep. And um, Antares. Satellite company, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yep. the star, <laughs> one of the brightest stars in the sky. Sure. So, but, yeah, if you if you do that and you give them money... It's, it's all a scam. Don't do that. Yeah. But what isn't a scam is this contest. Yeah. And we're so, talking about this exoplanet naming scam. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's something like 20 exoplanets the IAU has identified where they're going to run a contest where the public can actually go and vote on uh, names of each of those um, planetary systems and, like, suggest names and then vote on them. Uh, and then I think, I mean, the IAU actually passes resolutions that astronomers do actually try and follow so these names may actually be the, become the dominant names for well, these right systems. The, these will be legit and yeah. and i uh so i pulled up the the page right here and i just want to name off um the rules of naming and it was like in addition it is not allowed to propose names of pets names of living individuals names of a, a commercial nature oh yeah so i i think it's good for our listeners to know you should totally do this but you shouldn't be like, name this planet Fluffy, because I love her. Well, it said no living person. I mean, it could be 
Yeah, it could be like Tesla. That you could do that. So one cool thing about this, and let me just give the address so that folks can do it. So yeah. if you wanna if you wanna participate in this contest, you can go to name exoworlds. So I'll just spell it all out. N A M E E X O W O R L D S dot I A U dot org. And then it's got a list of the planetary systems, and you're naming, right, remember you're naming the planets, but one of the cool things about this is that many of these, the stars that these planets are orbiting are actually uh, naked eye stars. Wow. Yeah. So, so you could see maybe your planet, not really, but the yeah. star that your planet is around. <laughs> yeah, you can see that, like yeah. Fomalhaut and Pollux, like one oh, of the Pollux. Gemini twins. Wow. Yeah. I didn't I totally didn't know that we <laughs> discovered a planet around Pollux, but apparently we have. Wow. And people can name it. And then the other kind of curious thing is the first one of the first planets detected by this um, radial velocity wobble method which we were um, just talking about this doppler um, yeah doppler, doppler lines, lines. <laughs> Spectre, <laughs> yeah lines. it's on the list too it's relatively faint but it's a star called 51 pegasi so it's wow. like one of the top hundred brightest stars in the constellation wow. of pegasus wow. so you can actually see these things totally certainly with a small telescope or binoculars so don't throw your money away on stars do this yeah this is free name exoworlds.iau.org cool well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the other methods. You know, we always say that there's roughly three methods of finding these exoplanets, and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. Today we're joined by Dr. Kevin Covey talking about exoplanets. Spark Science is an all-volunteer run show, and if you'd like to help out, go to kmre.org and click on the button Donate. Spark Science. We were talking about other worlds and how they're found with Dr. Kevin Covey. And we talked about one way of finding planets. Is there another way? I said, you said there was three, so I'm just trying to get them all down. I There is three. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why yeah. I asked that, but <laughs> there's three. Yeah. I, Tell I me another. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's three. There might not be. So now we're kind of like the first decade of, of finding all of these planets was kind of ruled by that wobble method we talked about earlier. And so we're now kind of probably wrapping up the the second decade of, of uh, exoplanet exploration. And that's been dominated by this method called the transit technique, which is a fancy way of saying that we see the planets block a little bit of the starlight by actually moving in between us and the star that they're orbiting. Like a total solar eclipse here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... so or any eclipse or, here. Yeah, any kind of... A, yeah, but, but a, solar, a solar eclipse is a good one. Or the, the, a couple of years ago, people might remember... Um, there was this event called the Transit of Venus. The, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It happens every 186 years or something like that. Or, yeah. I don't know, maybe 113, no, every, 113 years or something. And it ha and it comes in pairs. They come every, in pairs, yeah. Every eight Now I think it's going to be several hundred years before we have another one. Right. The, that, the Transit of Venus, the big deal was that, you know, from where we were sitting on Earth, um, we could actually see tr Venus move across the face of the sun. And, and you could actually see kind of like a little perfect dot of blackness appear on one edge of the sun 
and then move steadily over to the other side of the sun and then leave. And so during that time when Venus was in between us and the sun, it was blocking you know, some little circle of, of the sun's surface, which would otherwise be shining light at us. And so if we just measured the total amount of light we were detecting from the sun, there'd be a, a pretty small but a perceptible drop in the total amount of, of starlight we're getting from the sun. And just for history that buffs, that was a huge event. That actually gave us direct measurement of how far away the Earth was from the sun. Yes. Yeah. I had, a, I had a ham sandwich that day. Did you? Yep. You weren't alive. Yeah, yeah you're super oh, actually, old because that happened well, in like 1910. Well, yeah. He, he was alive when it happened last time. Oh, oh, the last yeah. one. Yeah. 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 This transit has been being recorded by observatories on Earth, but also in a satellite. Yeah, the satellite that really... So there were, there are definitely transits that were measured before the Kepler satellite, which is what has really revolutionized this field. There were, there were measurements made with the Hubble Space Telescope, where they actually measured a transit really precisely using uh, Hubble. Doppler lines? <laughs> yes. They actually, they actually kind of did measure Doppler lines because they took a spectrum and then they added all the light from all these different wavelengths to measure the dimming more precisely. Nice. Um, yeah. He knows what's but, up. <laughs> and in the same way, you could also measure this dimming of, you know, the bigger a planet is, the more of the starlight of the star it's orbiting it will block. And so right. this transit method, you can detect relatively large planets first. And so people had been looking for these transits using ground-based telescopes and had measured, you know, transiting Jupiter's so we, we just looked up, so here in the studio, we're looking at uh, my tablet here, and we see that the Kepler mission from NASA, it's, uh, it's confirmed 1,030 planets, exoplanets. Um, there's four, uh, about 4,500 candidates of exoplanets, and then it has like 22, K2. And uh, so this K2, as Jordan enlightened me, is a mountain. It is a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> So there's a satellite on top of the mountain, and, and well, it's seen 22 planets. I was, I was trying to help you. It's an observatory <laughs> on top of a mountain, and it's confirmed uh, 22 exoplanets. So Well, K2, I mean, and to, to clarify, so yeah. K2 actually is just the same Kepler satellite. Oh, it so, is? Yeah, it is. Oh, I was so what wrong. Happened, so what happened, what happened <laughs> was You're Kepler. You're right again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said a mountain. No, he meant no. a metaphorical mountain. I thought it was an observatory. Oh, no, K2 no, is... No, so K2, okay. K2 is just um, Kepler being used in a different mode. So Kepler originally was staring at one patch of the sky, and it managed to do that for about three, I think a little more than three years, which was its nominal mission lifetime that NASA had designed it for. But astronomers would love to just keep Kepler staring at that same patch of sky for as long as possible, because when you're trying to find these little dimmings, these very slight dimmings when a planet passes in front of its uh, host star, then you see this little, f the star get a little bit fainter and it makes you feel much more secure about that measurement if you see it happen again. Okay, and then you've got two dimmings and you're like, okay, now I think I've got a planet that has a, an orbit equal to the, the amount of time that's passed between those two dimmings. And so then you wait that amount of time again, and if you see it dim that third time, then you can be very, very confident that that dimming is being caused by the orbit of a planet that's repeatedly passing in between us and the star it's orbiting. But this means that you can only, for any amount of time that you stare at a star, you're only going to be able to, to detect planets confidently that have an, a year that's essentially half as long as you've been watching. So the longer right. you stare at that star, 
you can find planets that are orbiting on longer orbits, which means they're farther away from their, their star. So by staring at the same stars for longer and longer, we're able to kind of like map out solar systems to larger and larger distances. When that satellite was staring in that region, that's what we called Kepler. That's what we called, yeah. So it okay. was the Kepler satellite, and it was looking at what's called the Kepler field as part and of the sky. And then what happened? And then what happened was um, it, right, it was designed to have gyroscopes that would keep it pointed in a very stable, precise way at that one part of the sky. And it was engineered with four of these gyroscopes, and it only needed three to stay pointed at that one patch of the sky. And so they shipped it with four because they knew that these things fail. It's any kind of machine. It, it has some amount of expected lifetime that they're going to get out of these gyroscopes. And so they shipped it with four to get it through its its lifetime. And that's it did get through that that nominal three-year mission, Redundancy which is good. Redundancy is good. We Redundancy is very good. Another yeah. episode. Yeah. But... But. Shortly after that three-year period, um, they had not just they had one fail. I think halfway through the mission, and then shortly after that three-year window, they actually had a second gyroscope fail, and so that left them with two gyroscopes, which meant um, they couldn't point nearly as precisely um, as they used to. And, and that's so, now. And now we call it K two. So now we call it K two because okay. they very very cleverly figured out how to stay pointing. You know, there's there are particular parts of the sky that, as the satellite orbits the sun, it can look at particular parts of the sky more stably than others. And okay. so, they, as it orbits, they every three months change where Kepler is looking so that it can it can measure as precisely as it can data from stars in that part of the sky. And then three months later, it shifts to another part of the sky, which is where it can now look stably again. Yeah, so I'm super gullible. When you said he was right, I was like, oh, he's right. <laughs> no, no, that was that <laughs> was sarcasm. K2's observatory. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, okay, so yeah. So Kevin's we on my side. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and just, I'm always right. Yeah, <laughs> I just expect Jordan to be right. So now, like you were saying, so these um, 4,696 candidates, it's going to be hard to confirm those now because those were found in the three-year mission before it got all not not straight, wobbly. Um, satellite. Yeah, and uh, so all of those candidates have been observed to transit multiple times. Okay. So that that builds uh, really good confidence. What the so the Kepler mission uses really precise terminology between talking about um, confirmed and candidate planets. And so, in order to confirm a planet, what they want is the gold standard of proof is some additional information that comes. Uh, basically from using that wobble technique to then go ahead and oh, measure okay. the mass of the planet. Okay. So that wobble technique gives us a really good estimate of the planet's mass, but it doesn't give us much more information. Is Kepler also taking itself. data for the wobble? Or that's, an no. that's another device doing yeah, it. Yeah, so that's, that is actually telescopes, okay. often o on mountains. On mountains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> often on mountains. Partially yeah. right. Okay. Partially <laughs> right. okay. Um, and so right now, that backlog, that 4,000 candidates, that's actually due in almost entirely to the fact that we just don't have enough telescopes on the ground to take and, all the data we need yeah. to move these planets that Kepler has discovered from that bin that we call candidate to that bin that we call confirmed. Yeah. You know, in 10 years, we're going to find the vast majority of those candidates will actually have, be confirmed planetary systems. Right. And it's just going to take us time to make those measurements to do that. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Jordan Baker. And I'm Regina Barber de Graff. Today we are talking about extrasolar planets with Dr. Kevin Covey.
So the people who are who are most excited about Kepler's original mission are a little disappointed because they were hoping to find planets like Earth. And being able to stare three years, right, that would means that we'd just barely be able to see those three transit events from a system like Earth. And so we was kind of just getting to the point where it was going to start pumping out detections or candidates of Earth-like planets. And so for when it failed, that that is something that we lost, is that ability to, to find uh, systems that are orbiting at a, a distance from their sun, like Earth is, which we think for stars like the sun, is a nice, a very nice place for life to form because it's not too hot and not too cold. The people who were happy though are, are so now that Kepler is operating in this new way where it's switching to look at different parts of the sky much more quickly, it's only going to find planets that are relatively close in. So they have to be orbiting on kind of like 45 day time scales. So they have to be closer in than Venus or closer in than Venus and Mercury. But it is also giving us a remarkable amount of information about many different types of stars that didn't happen to live in the Kepler field. And in particular, there's actually a lot of stars that are in clusters that have well-known ages. And so that's, this is allowing us to actually get a lot more information about the stars themselves and how they change as they age. And also for those most massive kind of close-in planets, we might actually be able to find examples of those planetary systems that are much closer to when they actually formed. So the Kepler field was staring at at a kind of patch of the sky that provided it the largest amount of stars that are relatively old, like the sun. So therefore, they don't have these large sunspots that are very characteristic of the youngest stars, which would it's make... It's not that old, but... Which one? This, the sun? The sun's not that old, right? It's, I mean, like, like... it's like nearly half the age of the universe. Yeah. yeah that's, that's probably pretty old. Yeah. Well, it's like middle age, for sure. So, so Kevin and I, he deals with star clusters that are younger, right? In like star-forming regions. Yep. And I deal with clusters of stars that are like near the age of the universe so i'm like that's, that's old, true right yeah so, yeah yeah it's yeah. all perspective so he's he's like the youth group leader right and, yeah and you're like the i'm like the senior citizen yeah. um coordinator cool. yes that's exactly what we God. are <laughs> of planets oh, of, stars. of stars right yeah. all right so so you're saying so we can look at actual now star forming clusters because yes. we can look at more and more places right yeah so there's there's a number of um young very young clusters that are right we you know gino is just kind of pointing out the difference in what we mean by young and old talking about like the difference between five billion years and yeah. 10 or 12 billion terminology years. is even different within one field right. which is but these, so sad <laughs> these stars there there are clusters that are, we would measure in kind of like a few million years which is actually really quite young mm-hmm. adolescent a, yeah. yeah yeah that is very like, adolescent pre-tween <laughs> Well, we probably should toddlers. T- we probably should tell the <laughs> listeners what is the age of the universe, and you know, like when you said the sun is half the age of the universe, what do you mean? So the universe is about twelve billion years old, okay. and the sun is, I think, four point four billion years old. Is the latest is that, measurement? Yeah, because so. it's it's been fluctuating between that and like six and stuff like that. But yeah, so. they uh, just carbon dating then. I just go go into the sun and pull a. Core, not out of core the, sample out or something. Not out of the sun, but yeah. out of the moon. Moon rocks. Moon, yeah. rocks. moon rocks are one of the one of the ways in which we get age for the solar system. And there's also meteorites. It's gonna so be like Armageddon, where they send Bruce Willis and his crew right. out into the moon, and he does he, like core samples. Right. Yeah. And then he blows up the moon. Right. 
No, he blew up an asteroid, right? Yeah, it was, I didn't see it was that an movie. asteroid. Yeah, there's seriously some great footage. It's not it's not Armageddon, yeah. but they actually have they have footage um, of one of the Apollo missions. And so one of the last ones, they actually sent a geologist up along with the rest of the astronauts. Cause really? They, yeah, because they huh. wanted they wanted you know someone who was kind of trained. Like, if you, we're going to send you all the way to the moon, you're going to pick up a bag of rocks and bring it back. We want someone who, like, knows what the interesting rocks to bring, bring back are. Yeah. So there's a really, there's a cool video. Uh, I don't know if it's available on YouTube, but, you know, it's this guy bouncing around in, like, an Apollo-era spacesuit. Picking not, up not, rocks. Not that they're a lot slimmer now. Right. Um, but he's, like, picking up rocks, and he just goes nuts because he finds this, like, really old, clear impact uh, kind of brescia rock so you can tell so this guy is psyched. like super excited in this giant like fluffy yeah because you're also suit. you're also it's not just because he's jumping around <laughs> <laughs> but he's jumping really slowly because he's yeah. under yeah. like moon oh, but gravity you can hear him but saying. you can also hear him talking with with houston and he just he kind just... of like loses it <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like oh my gosh orange brescia wow wow yeah that's... And so he brought back this thing called the Genesis rock, which is you know one of the oldest rocks that was brought back from the moon and one of the oldest kind of carbon dating um, from a planetary surface. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break now, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about what kinds of planets we're finding and, like, how does that relate to the planets we actually know. Okay. I'm Kevin Covey, an astrophysicist at Western Washington University. You're listening to KMRELP 102.3 FM in Bellingham. Your community, your voice, your station. Spark Science. We are talking to Dr. Kevin Covey, my colleague in the physics department who's down the hall, and I yell things to him sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Bang on the wall. Did you get my no, email? No, we're, we're in different sections, but oh. I do yell a lot. I mean, it's like happy yelling. It's yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not like criticizing. No, 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 no. That's grumbling. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't do that. Yeah. We are talking about Kepler, the satellite, K2, which is uh, now the, the same satellite but can't point at the, the same spot. It's like um, Kepler, the second version. Kepler, the second. K2. K2. There we go. Thank you, Jordan. You're welcome. And we were talking about all the exoplanet is it's found. And what we did during the break is we looked for this graph, and it shows how many exoplanets were found and then the year they were found. So it has 1995, and it has two exoplanets, and then it has 2000, it has 46. It has 2005, 168, which is good. We're getting higher. 2010, 385, and then it has 2014, 1,000 question mark. So we are finding these exoplanets really quickly, but what kinds of planets are they? Like we were talking about these hot Jupiters, and then we mentioned kind of Earth-like ones. So are we finding them? What different kinds and, like, what's going on? 
What's the new? What's all the new stuff? What's the haps? What's with the, the planet? What's yeah. the haps? Is Earth Park Two out there? Yeah. So that was that was a big press release e- e- that happened yeah, yeah. a couple weeks Thank ago, yeah. a couple <laughs> months ago, sometime soon. There was there was a big hullabaloo about actually having detected a planet about the size of Earth, about the distance from its host star, and its host star was kind of roughly like the sun. So they they're they think that they're actually getting very close to finding planets that are very similar in terms of their size and where they're located with respect to their star. Was that with Kepler? From Earth. That was with Kepler. Okay. Yeah, and that was that was actually a, you know, that was a confirmation of measurements that had originally, the original discovery was in that original Kepler field where they were staring for like three years. Right, one of those candidates we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. and so it recently had turned from being a candidate because there was additional work done from the ground to kind of confirm it. So the transit technique directly gives you a measurement of the the size, how big the planet looks to be, because you can measure how much light it blocks from its host star. And that wobble technique we talked about earlier, all it, it gives you a good sense of the mass of the planet. And so taking both of those measurements together allows you to estimate the density of the planet and figure out whether it's made out of something like rock, like Earth, or whether it's something like Jupiter, and so it's much larger but its mass may not be as large as it would be if it were created out of rock. And so, right, because so it would be a, a gas, gas giant. giant yeah. yeah. And so combining the, the kind of mass measurement from the wobble and the size measurement from the transit allows you to also get a, a really powerful sense of what the planet's actually made out of. And so right. um, that's why they put so much emphasis on, on confirming these planets and getting that mass measurement so that you can say, well, it's a rocky planet about the size of Earth at about the distance that Earth is from the sun. And so it's a world that could have the same kinds of conditions on its surface that we have here on Earth. You have a solid surface you could stand on, right. kind of gravity that's about as strong as, as it is here on Earth, 1G. But that's the only information we have. I mean, I, I want to emphasize to our listeners that we can't take like an image of this. We don't like take an image of like, oh, we see blue and green. No, it's, it's we're not at that point where we can actually image these planets, these smaller planets and we haven't imaged any planets have we or we haven't imaged uh, any extrasolar planets of of course we have our own planets in our solar system right and we've detected we've detected light from some of these planets okay uh, but we don't have like an image of its surface so we can there are some planets that we can actually see they're far enough away from their star that we can see the light from them but they're totally blurred right. out. We can't detect or, any detail about their surface. Right. It's the hmm. light that's reflected off of them from their star because they themselves do not produce light. Well, no, the ones that the ones that we can directly image. So Jupiter actually shines. Jupiter Does produces it? more light than it than it reflects from the sun. Actually, wow. yeah. I do not know this. Yeah. No. It, I mean, all of that light is coming out at much much longer wavelengths than our eyes can see. So okay. it's all in the infrared. Okay. So if you want to talk about the kind of light that our eyes can see, then it's totally just reflecting. Got it. Sunlight. But if you go far out to longer wavelengths, it is shining with infrared light because it's gradually kind of contracting and and it has some residual heat, and so it glows. This is what we're detecting with the planets, these, so these this, longer these, wavelengths. Yeah, okay, these ones that we've been able to actually kind of see separate from their star in an image, Got those it. are very, very far away from their host star, and they're very, very big, kind of like Jupiter is, and so they're shining under their own residual heat from their formation. Wow. Yeah. That's really exciting. No, that is pretty cool. Yeah. And so 
So we think it's Earth-like and that's because... The third, that's the third type of technique, just to wrap that oh, up. I know, oh, I know Jordan, oh, the, the listeners can't see this, but Jordan was like on the edge of his seat. Yeah, like he was teetering, trying to figure out what that third detection method it's is. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that direct imaging is, that's what we call that direct imaging, where we don't get an image of the planet's surface, but we can actually still see it separate from its star. That it exists. Yeah. Yeah. And so right now we've got something like 10 or 15 systems like that where we've been able to oh, make cool. images. Yeah, and there's a couple of very advanced instruments on telescopes right now that are observing from the ground that can take these super sharp pictures and barely make out the light that's being emitted from that planet at a very large distance from its star. So you do some research related to this, right, of exoplanet, sort of? Um, what I, the, the, the work that I do the most actively is trying to study the properties of these really, really young stars okay. in these star-forming regions and trying to understand their properties. So because we're always seeing the influence of these planets on their host star, much of what we know about the planets is limited by how well we know the properties of the star it's orbiting, right? So that wobble technique tells us the mass of the planet, but it only tells us the mass of the planet relative to the mass of its star. So right. we need to be able to have a very good estimate of the star's mass. And the transit technique gives us a really good measurement of the planet's size, how big it is, relative to how big its star is. And so all of these planetary measurements are kind of based on a really solid foundation of understanding stars. And so my colleagues and I are mostly focused on measuring the properties of particularly young stars so that when someone does find a planet around one of these objects, they can have a lot of confidence in the planetary parameters that they infer from the host star. Any of these methods, they do kind of require for us to be able to detect the planetary system, there is going to be a preferred orientation. And so for all of these detections that we're making, a planet that's in a certain, in an orbit that's oriented in a certain way will be easier to detect than a planet that's oriented in a different way. And so we have to measure lots of stars, try and measure a few planets, and then count for the fact that we were only going to detect the ones that were aligned in the way that would help us detect them. Um, so yeah, if there were some that were in a different incline we might not know. Right, right, right. So we have, to, we have to measure the properties of many stars because we know that there's lots of planetary systems out there that just because of the way that they're oriented, we aren't going to have as good of a chance of detecting. So we have to measure lots of stars to find the ones that have the favorable orientation and then correct for that when we think about what that tells us about how common these systems are. We have to remember right. that orientation effect. At work, we also were talking about how we it can image these planets but we haven't been able to image, let's say, the moons of those planets. So as our listeners know, because we've kind of talked about this, there's these large moons of Jupiter, there's these large moons of Saturn, and if we're finding all these hot Jupiters and we're finding all these gas planets in other solar systems, they might also have these kind of what we call habitable, I'm using air quotes again, habitable um, worlds that are moons. So is there an effort to kind of try to do that? And then we can kind of take some time to talk about these habitable moons because I, I want to talk about them. Okay. I like it. <laughs> there's certainly, yeah, there is. I mean, again, it's finding them. It's going to be a very rare situation. You'd have to have the stars aligned for you to be able to see it, right? Because you, you need to have <laughs> not only the planet like oriented. Like Sorry. <laughs> You'd have That's to why have you're the, laughing, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Okay. Mercury's in retrograde. Yeah, and then we found a moon. <laughs> so, right, we need to actually have the planetary system oriented in such a way that we would see the Jupiter-sized planet. 
and then the moon that's orbiting it would have to be in a certain part of its orbit so that when, so if we we're going to detect this moon because of the transit technique, what we'd be looking for is we'd see the star get dimmer as the big thing like Jupiter passed in front of it. And then a little while later, it would go and get even fainter when its moon also started blocking some starlight. And then both of those oh, objects wow. would pass the star, and then the Jupiter-sized object would leave, and the star would get mostly bright again. But then a little bit later, we'd see it get a little bit brighter again when the moon left. And so we'd be looking for these kind of characteristic dimming and then brightening events in a pattern that told us not only do we have a planet, but that planet has trailing behind it or in front of it a moon that's orbiting it. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Jordan Baker. And I'm Regina Barber de Graff. Today we are talking about extrasolar planets with Dr. Kevin Covey. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, kmre.org, and click on the podcast link. Using the third method to find planets, could you find a glowing planet and then the reflection of its moon off of the glow? That would be very hard. The contrast and the size of these planets we're currently detecting with that third method is is such that I think it'd be extremely difficult to see a moon in those systems. Could it be a moon like you were saying this transit they would have to be aligned or could it be like sunspots on the this on the star? Your postdoc or a postdoc that is working with you does research in looking at these light curves, looking at these transit data that we get, but also using it to kind of see if there's dimming because there's these giant sunspots on the stars. You would have to, you'd have to measure many of these kind of dimming and brightening right. events and something like a moon that always has the same size and it ends up orbiting on right. a very regular orbit, you'd be able to predict when you should see that dimming and exactly how much it should be. Something like a star spot, Right, a star spot will kind of come and go and its size can change. And so it would be not quite as predictable as this moon signal. I guess, yeah, um, it wouldn't be a sunspot. It would be a star spot. It would be spot. a star spot, yeah. Got it. But it is a super hard measurement to make. So you'd have to rule out things like star spots. And so we're talking about these other worlds. And do you know the closest planet that has been detected to our solar system and like in our in our region of the galaxy? Do you know if they're... What that is? Not off no. the top of my head. I people have been looking. Certainly, like so, the closest star system is Alpha Centauri, but actually, right. there's a it, it has, it has a, a different kind of, name. Yeah. Well, I no, see it. It, it's so there's Alpha Centauri, but there's even a closer part of that system right. called Proxima Centauri. Right. So yeah. that's the closest star, and so I right. think people have been looking at those those couple of stars. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that that a planet has been detected around either of those stars yet. Right. Is that where that satellite is headed towards that we... I don't think it's headed towards that direction. That we were talking about the, the, uh, the New Horizons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Horizons. Where it's going to leave our solar system. But right. it's going to take, like, so long to, to get oh, anywhere. I but I don't it know it's going to be there already. Right. <laughs> it's going to take so long to even leave our, our own solar system or cloud, right? But I don't know if it's going in that direction specifically to Proxima Centauri. It's not. No. Where's no. it going? Do, you, do we know? Or is, I know this is off topic. But. No, I have no idea. I mean, it's going to okay. it's going to go it's, <laughs> it's gonna, I mean, it's going to go through the Kuiper belt and there's been a lot of there's work done to try and see if there's any other small bodies right, in we the outer about solar that. system that it can happen to kind of do a flyby right, so that, now. That show is airing right now actually. So this show won't air until Stop listening September. to us. Yeah. Listen, turn on <laughs> no, your radio. No, no, they won't hear this until months. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but I, th I think the reason why exoplanets are so exciting and why, you know, it's always in the news is because humans are like, oh, well, then we can go somewhere. Like, I want to go to another planet. But I want to bring us back to talking about these moons because 
we don't have to leave our solar system to see these like kind of habitable I again not really habitable not really habitable but these other worlds that actually even exist in our own solar system so I wanted to take a time to talk about like Europa and Enceladus and Titan just for a little bit Mm -hmm. do you know anything about these um, these moons because I read about them before for a day Right. I mean, I know, I, so it's certainly, it's not the subject of my own research, but I know, I know that they're, they are exciting and particularly Europa. So we do have, we, we, maybe we should talk about what it means for a planet to be habitable. Right. Um, but Europa is one of the kind of places in our own solar system that people are interested to try and go and sample the conditions to try and figure out if, if there are conditions where life could persist. And so Europa is an icy moon of Jupiter. And they believe that there is water underneath it and completely covered in ocean and that ocean is covered in ice. Scientists believe that there is a core, a rocky core, but it is messed with, I guess is the thing. Jupiter is so massive that the tidal tidal forces forces kind of make the core be active and there's eruptions, they believe, possibly. And we had a uh, Life at Volcanic Vents show. And so we think maybe that might be happening at Europa. So that's super exciting. And then a moon of Saturn. So Enceladus is a really small moon of Saturn, but Cassini went there and it actually saw these geysers, right? These geysers coming out of um, a moon, which means it has water, A water vapor plume. Right, exactly. And um, these geysers actually shoot water, it said, three times further than the radius of Enceladus itself. So they actually could take data on the material that was like shot out. And then there's Titan, right? And that's a huge moon of Saturn. That's, uh, I think, one of the largest moons. I don't know if you know this. Well, I, think it, is I think Titan. it is. is yeah. it? <laughs> I think it is the largest moon in Saturn, in the Saturn system. Yeah, and it has like lakes of methane and mm-hmm. they think it has like under the surface water and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, they think it has a large, like, they think it basically rains methane, that there's a whole, the same way in which we have a water cycle here on Earth, that they have, like, a methane cycle. Yeah, and its uh, atmosphere is so thick we can't actually see through it, so we actually sent a probe, Cassini sent a probe. Huygens. Cassini also carried the uh, European-built Huygens probe, which parachuted through Titan's atmosphere in 2005 to make the first landing on a body in the outer solar system. Thank you, Europe. We have a few listeners in Europe. I want to give a shout out to our Russian listener. I just saw this. We have, I think it's one person that played five episode or it's five Russians. I don't know what awesome. it is. I, I'm going to be pessimistic and I think it's one person. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> well, Dobra Den. It, what is that? That's good day in Russian. Oh, mm. you're welcome. <laughs> wow, Jordan. <laughs> there's, um, there's a movie called Europa Report, I believe, because this is our time where we talk about movies, right? I don't know if there's any other movies that are about like the moons these these really cool objects that are inside our own solar system i mean in 2000 i think in 2001 like the movie yeah i think they were going to jupiter and this brings us this back is, to your other episode this is really good radio <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think yeah. they were going to the moons of jupiter in yeah. 2001 uh, so so what was that movie i think it was called maybe the explorers where it's like the three friends built like this spaceship and then they went out into space, and it was made out of, like, old car parts and stuff. Wow. And then they met. No. No. Whatever. This does not ring a bell. Huh. Our Venn diagrams of movies don't overlap at all. I realize. <laughs> right. At all. They don't. <laughs> that makes a, it's a, it's good. It's diversity on the radio. It's good. 
There's nothing really to do. I just it's a space movie. Okay, that's okay. all I got. I mean, it sounded to me more like a Chippendale kind of like plucky. Well, they ended up like animated. meeting up with Not these the other dancers, aliens, the and there it was like a, a it was like the the kid aliens and stole like the Cadillac from the they other like parent aliens. Oh yeah, they made it back. Oh, I didn't mean to back. I just meant to a, a planet. No, they made it. No. No. <laughs> oh no. All right. Well. Thank you. I want to thank you, uh, Kevin, for coming to talk to us about some actual science and not mm-hmm. not movie science. I actually learned a lot about the different detection and what K2 actually means. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you for joining us. We just spoke with Kevin Covey about exoplanets. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, kmre.org, and click on the podcast link. If you liked our show and would like to help us out, go to kmre.org and click on the button Donate. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We'll be back again next week. Listen to us Sunday at 5 p.m., Wednesday at 9 p.m., and Saturday at noon. If there's a science idea that you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. Spark Science is an all-volunteer-run show, and if you'd like to help out, go to kmre.org and click on the button Donate. Today's episode, Other Worlds, was produced in the KMRE Spark Radio Studios, located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. Our producer is Katie Knudsen, and engineer for today's show is Eric Faburetta. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.